0: Welcome to Significant Bits. This is Josh again, and you've got just B this time. I was planning to talk some about randomness and random algorithms, but before I get there, a few quick programming notes. I now have theme music. I was told in no uncertain terms that I needed theme music, so I went and dug around in some fairly old audio, sorry for the scratchiness, and found stuff that was out of copyright. This is a song called Little Bits by the Johnny Dodds Trio, and it seemed appropriate. If you have opinions about other things that I definitely must do, feel free to drop me a line. Second, to date there have been two flavors of significant bits, one an interview, and the other just me. I'm going to add a third one, which is a group of four of us talking about papers broadly in the computer science realm. And to make it easier to skip the ones that you aren't interested in, I'll be making the titles predictable. Things that are just me will be labeled IOTA. Things that are an interview will be some topic with some person. And things that are the paper reading club will be entitled paper cuts. For those of you who are interested in reading along in the papers prior to the conversation, our first discussion will be about habitability in software. And I will put a link in the show notes. It's a pretty easy, pretty short seven page read. Before continuing continue on to the real content, I will give you a mini embarrassing bug. This story is about a bug in the Go compiler in the short circuit pass. What the short circuit pass does is not particularly material here. The key thing is it does operations on the control flow graph, which are things that you can make really pretty ASCII charts for. And early in the pandemic, I added a fairly uh, complex addition to the short circuit pass, and it was complicated code. And I took the time to write out some very pretty charts in ASCII demonstrating what each of the things does and how they are manipulated. And the reviewer, Keith, was nervous. He said, you know, this is a lot of new code. How could be confident that all of this stuff is tested? And I said, well, while I worked on it, I noticed that pretty much time I screwed anything up, something bad in the standard library tests would break. And all of this has quite good coverage in the standard library. So I'm pretty confident in it. And I put myself out there. I said, you know what, I'm really pretty sure that this is okay, and we can move forward with it. And then, sure enough, we got a bug report that this new change caused the compiler to crash on some marginally obscure inputs. It wasn't a disaster, but the compiler shouldn't ever crash. And when I dug into it, it turned out that I had been deceived by all of my ASCII graphs. And the thing about pretty pictures you draw yourself is that the pictures contain lots of assumptions. For example, if there are nodes there, and there are two separate nodes in the graph, you assume that the two nodes are in fact separate in reality. But that might not be true, and in fact, in this case, I had made an assumption that two nodes were distinct because I drew them as distinct. The fix was pretty easy. I went through graph by graph, chart by chart, found every implicit assumption that I could find in the chart, and added them as preconditions to the code. I simply made the code match the charts. The good news was that the charts were the interesting case, and the cases in which the charts didn't match were degenerate cases that didn't come up often in real code and were particularly interesting. Still, the moral of the story is, if you're going to draw yourself a pretty picture, make sure that the pretty picture reflects reality. Okay, on to randomness. I love random algorithms, and I've been pondering why. And I think it's because of this entertaining tension where we try so hard to banish randomness as the foundation of programming. We want to make programs that are perfectly reproducible, that are reliable, that match the nice mathematical models of programming that some of us were taught in school. And yet, in the end, computers run in the real world and the real world doesn't always behave the way it is supposed to. And sometimes this is a source of interest and delight as with quantum programming, and sometimes as with random bit flips on hard drives, this is a source of exasperation. And we've developed a bunch of tools to work around this. At the low level, we have error correcting codes, like we find in hard drives, like we find for packet loss. Some of these are error detection, some of these are error correction, but this is how we can send a video stream over UDP with the concomitant packet loss and still do fine. This includes DNS bit flips. So when you ask for google.com and somewhere on the wire, one of the bits in the ASCII representation of the E flips and it turns into Google. There's RAM flips. If you ever have ECC RAM, you'll be horrified to discover occasionally that your RAM is not entirely reliable. And we have tools to keep all of this randomness at bay. We also have higher level tools to keep the randomness at bay. For example, if you're running benchmarks, and there's some random variation in how fast these things run because the world is complicated. We have Benchstat, at least in the Go world, to help us do statistical tests to determine whether, in fact, the change that we're seeing is real. And there's Chaos Monkey, the old Netflix tool that sniped servers at random, which enforced that the entire serving infrastructure was prepared to deal with random failures. If you fail often, fail early, fail repeatedly, and recover fast, it's another higher level way of dealing with random failures in the world. And interestingly, being able to deal with random failures in the world is also a really good way to learn about the structure of the world. If you can reconstitute part of what has gone missing, you have to understand its structure to do that. And this is an idea that has been exploited quite a lot over the last 10 years plus of machine learning. The way that you train many large language models and audio models and the like is by teaching a system to reconstruct its input when you eliminate some of the inputs. And the only way to reliably get back the original input after throwing it away so you can't see it is to actually know enough about the world in order to recreate it which is one last interesting philosophical connection I'll draw before talking about specific random algorithms, which is there is in some sense two different kinds of randomness. There's ontological randomness, randomness that's there in the world. At the quantum level, this is pretty pronounced. And then there's epistemic randomness, things that look random because we can't actually tell what's going on, even though if we were to look at it at a different level of explanation, it might be perfectly clear. We simply don't know. Um, and there's an argument to be made that most of the randomness or apparent randomness that we deal with in the world is epistemic randomness. There's a perfectly good reason that we flipped a bit. We just don't know what it is, and we don't really care. We're happy having an epistemic recovery from that randomness. Anyway, so the exciting thing about random algorithms is that after having worked so incredibly hard to impose structure on the world, we then throw it away and generate our own source of epistemic randomness by using a pseudo-random number generator, which is perfectly deterministic, and then use that randomness for some purpose. And the thing that makes pretty much all these algorithms tick is the idea that over some relevant distribution, most of the things that we might look at give the right answer. And so we don't need to try very hard to try to correctly track the exact right answer. We can just take any of them. So let's run down a list of some random algorithms. The very simplest, and perhaps my favorite, is random profiling. If you want to know what part of your long-running program is slow, kill your program at random. In Go, you might send it a sig stop to force it to dump its stack traces, and then look what was running at the exact moment that you killed it. That's probably a thing worth making faster. Why does this work? Well, the things that are slow are at any given moment the things that are most likely to be running. It's the same deal with sitting in traffic. Most of the people in the world driving right now are sitting in traffic because when you're in traffic, you are driving for longer. If you're nervous about doing random profiling, do it twice or three times. You'll likely see the same thing showing up. And by the way, this doesn't just have to be programs. If you're one of these people who is really into optimizing your own workflows, set a timer... That goes off randomly and whatever it is you are doing at the moment that the timer goes off that is the thing that you should spend a little bit of time trying to optimize in your life another random algorithm is the random replacement algorithm for cache eviction if you have a cache and you are getting in new entries that you can't fit in your cache which cache entry should you throw away you could always do lru least recently used or LFU, least frequently used, or you can use fancy algorithms, including the newest one to take the cache replacement world by storm, which is Civ, it's pretty cool, it's worth reading about if you're into these things. Well, one option is to simply pick any item at all at random and throw it away. And the intuition here is that most items aren't important. And if most items are important, then you can throw away anyone you like. And if you happen to get unlucky and throw away something important, it'll get replaced really quickly, But for the most part, you won't get unlucky because most items are on the long tail. So don't work really hard trying to track all of these things, just throw away anything. And it is my go-to anytime that I am writing a simple cache and I need a replacement algorithm, I always reach for random replacement first and then deal with it later if it turns out I need something more sophisticated, which almost never happens. Another really exciting random algorithm is Monte Carlo simulation or estimation. A fun way to talk about this is in early programs that played the board game Go. One of the things that made chess more amenable to computer analysis was that there were fewer moves, but a bigger thing was that it was easier to do static analysis, to look at the board and say, how good is this position? Is white have an advantage, and how much of one? And part of this is you can add up the point value of the pieces, you can run a few heuristics, and you can get a number that gives you a pretty good sense If rough about how good the board is and then you can do your tree walk up and down all the possible permutations of moves and look at which ones lead you on average to a pretty good board outcome it's much harder to look at a go board and say whether or not the position is a good one so prior to the fancy deep learning algorithms that got really good at go one of the big advances was doing monte carlo simulation Here's a random go game board and it's Black's move. How good is Black's position? The answer is you play a bunch of moves at random many thousands or millions of times and you see which ones end up in Black winning or White winning. And on average, I know you're making random moves instead of intelligent moves. It's much faster. On average, it turns out that if random moves lead to Black winning, then overall Black's board position is better. Yes, there are going to be tidy outliers, but... Just choosing a bunch of random ones gives you a pretty good sense of the space. And this ability to do static estimation using more expensive but still cheap enough Monte Carlo simulation was a big step forward in machines playing Go. And again, Monte Carlo is one of these techniques that I reach for any time I have a complicated thing to calculate. say, look, just simulate it, and for the most part, you'll get it right. Another fun one is random projection. Suppose you have a bunch of points in a high dimensional space and you want it to be in a lower dimensional space. You could do fancy things like principal component analysis or singular value decomposition, or instead you could just take a random projection matrix um, subject to some fairly simple constraints and just project it down. And on average, it will preserve distance between points pretty well. I sometimes have a high dimensional space that I need to visualize, and my first tool that I reach for is to grab a random projection matrix, project it down to 2D, and just take a good look at it. Um, And because most projection matrices are good projection matrices, taking one at random will, for the most part, give you a good answer. Something similar gets put to good use in a machine learning and categorization technique called a random forest. So suppose that you had a bunch of objects, each of which had some features and then had some category and you try to design a categorization tool that would take in a brand new heretofore unseen object and pick its classification based on its features. One simple way to do this is to build a decision tree. You start by looking at which feature best splits up things by category, and you find some cutoff. So that feature and that cutoff will then be the root of your tree. Proceed to the left, things that were below that cutoff, figure out which feature best divides the remaining items, use that feature in a new cutoff, do the same on the right and proceed. The great thing about this is it's very simple to calculate. It's very fast and simple to execute. And it is also something that you can explain. Unlike the modern AI world where we have all these uninterpretable models, it's very easy to explain how it does what it does. The problem is it's super easy to overfit your data. In the most trivial case, you could follow your tree all the way down until every single inbound data point had exactly one leaf node, at which point you would have perfectly fit your data. So it might not generalize well. So the idea is to take a lot of these trees and instead of categorizing based on all of your data, you take random subsets of your data and you make a tree for each of those random subsets. That is, you have a random forest. And then when it comes time to try to categorize something unknown, You run it through all of the trees in your forest and see, on average, what label or categorization it spits out. Another neat use of randomness that I recently discovered is in the T-digest algorithm for tracking quantiles. Suppose you have a lot of inbound numeric values and you want to know what the 90th percentile or the 99th percentile is without having to keep track of every single value. There are some data structures you can do that do this estimation on the fly by tracking more data points where it looks like the cumulative distribution function is changing, that is, where it goes from, say, nth percentile to n plus first percentile, and fewer data points where things are pretty flat. Now, this does come up with this question, which is, hey, I'm keeping track of some of my data, but not others. What of my data points should I discard? And the answer is, you use a particular random distribution to figure out which things to discard, such that the data set that you retain has approximately the same overall distribution as the data set you're trying to track. Pretty cool. Another of my favorite uses of randomness is using a fuzzer to find bugs in your code. Uh, Two more, Hmm, maybe more than two more. Okay, don't worry, we're almost done in Josh's romp through his favorite random algorithms. I'm just touching on each of these a little bit. I assume that many of you will be familiar with most of them, but you can go and look up in more detail the ones that are more interesting. When you talk about random data structures, people immediately think of bloom filters. But there's a whole class of cool data structures that are like bloom filters, but are way more interesting. For example, the count min sketch. Count min sketch starts similar to a bloom filter. You take some inbound data, you hash it, you run it modulo n, and then you have a number of offsets into arrays. But instead of merely setting to one, the bits in those arrays, you increment a count. And what you can do is to use this to answer the question, have I seen this object fewer than, say, four times? To answer that question, you take your object, you do your hashing, you look up all the numbers. If any one of those numbers, any one of those counts you've been keeping track of is less than four, you know you definitely have not seen that four times. If you had, Every time you saw it, you would have incremented every one of those counts. If it is the case that all of the counts are four or above, you might have seen it four times, you might not have. It could just be bad luck that other things happen to combine in a pattern of increments to get you to four, but it can let you definitively throw things away. And so if you need the same sort of uh, one-sided confidence versus probability test you get in a Bloom filter, but you want to have a count instead of merely existence, you can use a count min sketch. Another thing that people use randomness for is distributing load. Suppose that you have a load balancer and you have inbound requests and you want to send those requests to some number of servers that can handle them. Oftentimes people will distribute them randomly. The downside is if you have one server that's on the struggle bus and can't keep up with its load, there's no way to be responsive to this. Many people respond by trying to do health checks and do monitoring and do all of this expensive work to accurately measure the state and make optimal decisions. But if you're thinking from the perspective of random algorithms, we don't want to do that. How can we take our simple random assignment and make it better without giving up the simplicity of the randomness? And the answer is something called best of two random choices. And this is applicable in lots of arenas. It turns out that if instead of just picking one at random, And then using it, if you have some simple local metrics, and you always pick two, and you send it to whichever one is better of those two, you get more than linear improvements in the behavior of your algorithms. If you have the ability to have any metric that says which one is better, and you can afford to make two choices instead of one, do two, pick the best one. Mark Booker has a lovely blog post about this that I will link to in the show notes. His blog in general is a great source of inspiration for lots of interesting data structure things, and his writing is very clear. I definitely recommend it. Last thing about algorithms. This is not actually a random algorithm, but it is an algorithm for use with a PRNG, and I mention it because I think it is not known as widely as it should be, and it is underappreciated. This is Vitter's Algorithm D, V-I-T-T-E-R. Suppose that you needed to do random sampling without replacement. So you have 100,000 objects and you need seven of them. And you wanna make sure that you get seven distinct objects. Well, one thing you could do, if they're all say in an array is you could just pick randomly zero to 100,000 and then keep track of all the ones you've seen before. So pick randomly, pick randomly again, pick randomly again. And as needed, you discard selections. This will start to break down at some point if it becomes expensive to keep track of all the things you've picked, or if it's expensive to have access to this array, in particular, if it's expensive to have random access to this array. In these scenarios, and when this algorithm was designed, people were storing data on tape where it was much easier to do one forward pass through your data and random access was incredibly expensive. This algorithm was designed so that you could say, I have. And items and I want k of them and it would go through and generate a list of k indices all in order to pick that would be it you'd be like okay take item 1 243 23,212 etc and the algorithm involves lots of fancy math but you know you can get it implemented in a library somewhere and then when you have to do random selection without replacement Instead of writing a whole bunch of for loops and sampling, etc., you can simply have it generate the list for you and then go through the list in linear order one at a time. Your caches will thank you. And with that, I've probably rambled at you enough. Hopefully something new and exciting and random in the appropriate sense has caught your ear. I'm always happy to get feedback at josh at sigpod.dev. Yes, I'm a dinosaur and I use email. And i think the next show will probably be paper cuts but it could be an interview who knows